I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. This week, setting expectations around the complexity of Braille Head, a demonstration of the new Sonos voice control feature. And on a personal note, I have a super exciting announcement. Mosen at Large Podcast. Welcome to this episode 181. Episode 182 is not too far away, actually, so it's possible that you might be listening to episode 181 after you listen to 182. That's because episode 182 is a special devoted to the WWDC keynote from Apple. This is where we finally learn what's coming up in the next versions of Apple's operating systems, including iOS, tvOS, macOS, and watchOS. Right after the keynote has concluded, we'll be getting together, recording our podcast episode and publishing it for you on the 6th of June US time. And I expect we'll be in a position to publish that at around about 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific on that day. That'll be 9 a.m. ish New Zealand time on Tuesday, the 7th of June. We'll get the transcript to you as soon as possible after that for those who use the transcript. I want to start on a sad note this week and pay a tribute to someone whose death I learned of this week, and that is the legendary Neville Kerr in Australia. Now, Neville is a name you may have heard. Certainly in Australia, you will have heard it. You may have heard it elsewhere around the world as well. Neville, for many years, hosted the Horizons program for Blind Citizens Australia, or as it used to be called, the National Federation of Blind Citizens of Australia. I first became aware of Neville when the internet started bringing us together in terms of the programming of a blindness nature that we could hear from around the world. And in early 2000, ACB Radio began carrying the Horizons program that he produced. And he produced a phenomenal number of episodes of Horizons over the years. Because of ACB Radio, and I think also because of my role as president of the consumer organization here, I was interviewed by Neville a couple of times, and I'm pretty sure one of those was in person. I know I did meet Neville, and I think we were geeking out over some of the gear that he was using, because Neville produced very good quality radio in every respect. Neville loved the medium, and you could tell that he loved the medium, and he understood the power of what the medium could produce. When I listened to the special extended episode of New Horizons, which is available in podcast form from Blind Citizens Australia, I was stunned by some of the audio describing that Neville was doing, getting on and off trams, going to buildings and taking us on what we would later in podcasting circles call a sound seeing tour. But Neville was strutting his stuff and doing these things long before podcasting. And I would think the gear that he would have to use to achieve what he achieved, and it was extremely high quality, must have been quite large and bulky. I've got this mental image in my mind of Neville with this massive backpack on him or something like that with all of the recording equipment and high quality microphones that he would use to do these recordings. And the thing is, Neville was a volunteer. He was a switchboard operator by day and he just donated a lot of his time to sharing information with fellow blind people. Neville was also an instrumental figure in the establishment of the early radio for the print handicapped stations, as they were called then, in Australia, and kept his hand in for many years. He also did his share of product demonstrations. On the few occasions I had the privilege of meeting him and talking with him, he was always so pleasant and encouraging of the work that we were doing at ACB Radio. 
And one of the things that I've always admired very much about Blind Citizens Australia is how they do honour those people who have contributed. Neville was so honoured in 2003 with the receipt of the David Blythe Award, which is their most prestigious award, and also this most recent episode of New Horizons is a wonderful, fitting, loving tribute to Neville Kerr and all that he has contributed. Neville has left a legacy, and it's up to those of us who provide access to information in this kind of format for the blind community wherever we are in the world to build on that legacy. That is the best way that we can honour him. So thanks to Neville Kerr for always being so willing to share, to devote so much of his time so that blind people could know more things. Over the last couple of episodes, I've been chronicling the debacle that was my Google tech support experience, trying to establish for sure whether Braille Head would be supported in the new version of TalkBack that will have Braille built in and is compatible with Android 13. Finally, last week, we were able to confirm that no, there will not be Braille Head support in TalkBack for Android 13, as APH said there wouldn't. When I began covering this issue on the podcast, I mentioned that my first approach was to use some back channels. And sometimes those back channels deliver, and sometimes they don't. And I absolutely respect that. Sometimes there are just situations that are so complex or risky to talk about that people who might normally go off the record don't. Some of the biggest corporate entities in the world, these big mainstream technology companies, are now also assistive technology companies. And there is this fundamental cultural clash there because the way that the blind community has become used to engaging with our assistive technology companies is just not the way that these large corporate entities like to engage. For example... I have been very close to having some interviews on this podcast with some pretty significant players in some major mainstream technology companies. Where we get stuck is that their legal people, their PR people often want me to provide a list of questions and they will review those questions and they'll essentially veto which ones I can ask. And I will not play that game. I go back and I say to them, I'm happy to tell you in broad terms what I want to discuss, and I'm happy to give you a commitment that I will keep to the subject matter. What I'm not prepared to do is give you a list of questions so that you can then script a set of answers, because for one thing, it sounds stilted. People can hear when those interviews are contrived. For another, they're not informative. What I want to do is have a conversation with people who come on this podcast. And of course, I make a list of things that I want to ask people. I think about where I'd like the interview to go. But if I stick to that list, I'm not doing you, the listener, any favor. What I need to be doing is listening to the answers. And if somebody says something interesting, it's my job to pick them up on that answer and perhaps take the interview in a direction that I wasn't expecting. That's the difference between a stilted, scripted interview and an actual conversation. And I like to think that what our listeners want is a conversation, a genuine dialogue. You can't have that if you agree to terms that say we can only stick to a script. And I think that those sorts of interviews are actually nothing more than clickbait. If I tell you that I'm going to have a really significant person from the technology industry on this podcast, sure, it might make my listener count for that episode even higher than the high numbers we normally get. 
But I think it would be disingenuous of me because I wouldn't be giving you the kind of product that you have come to expect from Mosin at large. And so sometimes you do get some of these fan-type podcasts that have interviews with people, and you really don't get much that you didn't already know because it becomes a bit of positive PR. There's nothing challenging. And that's not to say that I want to bring people on this podcast to tear them apart unfairly. It's just that we need to have a respectful, frank discussion. Otherwise, I'm wasting your time. But what has happened is that because of the constraints that many people feel that they are under, people do talk to me. Some of the information that I impart to you has come from extraordinary sources, knowing that I will disclose information to you in a way that doesn't identify where the information has come from. It takes a long time to build that sort of trust with people. And I'm very pleased to say that I do have that sort of trust with quite a few people at this point. So sometimes when I say things, it may be a bit more than speculation on my part. I say this because I want to come back to this question of Braille head support and talk about some things that may be true. There may be quite a bit of concern in some parts of Google at the moment about the disconnect that appears to have occurred over the Braille head issue. People have been saying, and I have been repeating, that Google was around the table in 2018 when the Braille head standard was developed. Now, if that's the case, and I have no reason to doubt that it's the case, then there seems to have been a disconnect between those people who made those commitments and the people who plan what's going into TalkBack and when. You've got to remember that these companies are massive. They are huge organizations. So it's not surprising that sometimes you get silos in corporate entities like this. It may be true that there is some concern in Google that the Braille head issue has somewhat overshadowed some excellent progress that is being made with Braille. Initially, the objectives for the TalkBack Braille support were fairly minimal. The idea was, let's get things up to parity with Brailleback so that at least Braille users didn't have to have anything else to install. Once you had TalkBack up and running, you had your Braille support, it would be much easier. In Android 13, Braille support is going to be a lot better than what you can get in Brailleback today. So they have exceeded those initial aims and expectations. Is a prolific Braille user who wants all the bells and whistles going to be happy? Well, no, obviously there's the Braille head issue, but also there are going to be no flash messages in the initial version, for example. But there are going to be a lot more commands. And as we saw from the video that launched TalkBack Braille support, the commands are more conventional. They are adhering to the conventions like one, two, three chord to go to the top of a screen or a file. And that is welcome. What I can also tell you is that there is no Braille head support in Android 13, period. I mentioned that it may work over USB. It will not. It will work in USB through Braille TTY, but it will not work with TalkBack at all. Given the complexity of what is involved in making TalkBack work with Braille head, you might be lucky to see this in Android 15. So we are talking some way down the track. Of course, with a company the size of Google, 
if there is sufficient pressure, you never know what might happen. This is Google. The resources at their disposal are considerable. And so you'd have to say, look, if the pressure is really on over this thing, then maybe significant resources will be thrown at the problem. And we could even get it for Android 13 or Android 14. At the moment, though, with resourcing at current levels and the significance of what's involved in making it happen, it is important to set those expectations about how long this might take. Most of us, whether we're Braille users or not, have experienced this thing where you call up your screen reader tech support and they will tell you it's a problem with the application you're trying to use or vice versa. You know, you go to Microsoft, say, for something to do with Word and they might say, well, it's this is a JAWS issue. You need to contact Vespero and on and on it goes. We are getting into this situation with Head. Because most manufacturers have gone with a foot in both camps. QBraille supports HID, I am told, and I'm also told that Orbit supports HID with their Braille displays. But those manufacturers have also introduced backward compatibility, which means that they will work with screen readers that don't support HID. That means that users of those devices will be able to use TalkBack Braille support in Android 13. Humanware is the odd one out in this regard, it seems, in that they've gone all in on head. And at the moment, if you use a Bradiant Braille display or a Mantis or a Chameleon or one of the e-readers that have been manufactured for the National Library Service by Humanware, then there's no other option. You have to have head or it won't work. So those who understand the frustration and the disconnect that appears to have occurred at Google regarding a commitment that has been made to support HID and actually getting it to people who can implement that support and make it happen are concerned that maybe they're being hung out to dry, really. Look, this is going to take some time. Surely Humanware has the code from older devices that it could include in newer devices so that humanware users get backward compatibility for the period that it's going to take for everybody to jump on the head bandwagon. I have reached out to humanware for some comment on that, whether it is something that they would entertain. And of course, I will keep you informed if I get any kind of response back. So while I cannot interview anybody about this issue, I have done my best to represent, in the interests of fairness, what I believe to be a prevailing view internally at Google about this issue. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Negoslav is writing in and says, Hello, Jonathan. Warm greetings from Bulgaria. I am a long-time listener, but this is my first comment on the show. Well, welcome. That's wonderful. First, I will use the opportunity to thank you for being so open about different topics and so balanced on controversial subjects. Now on the topic. I always appreciate the new and innovative ways Apple is implementing accessibility in their products. I have been an iPhone user since 2012. My first Apple device was an iPhone 4S. It was very hard to save the money to buy it, and with a few exceptions, I never regretted my switch to Apple. 
I still use a working iPhone 6 and my original SE first edition. When I read the Apple preview of the innovative accessibility features for iOS 16, I was thrilled to see that finally support for my native language is coming. This is a long-awaited feature that could open the door for more new Apple users in my country. But my second thought was, wait, they are using the Nuance Vocalizer Voices. The only Bulgarian vocalizer voice is named Daria, and it is not good quality at all. It has bad pronunciation, and no way it can be called a finished product. On the contrary, it is in its infancy. We've had an old voice since 2005, which works on Windows XP and Android 3 and beyond. All blind people use this voice. It is good quality, and without exaggeration, it can compare to the best speech synthesizers. It is just world class, and it still serves us well. The vocalizer voice is newer, and it is expected to be a better quality, but it is not. No one I know here takes this voice seriously or uses it for work. We are now at the final testing phase of two new good quality natural sounding Bulgarian voices created with cutting edge technology. The project is financed by a government fund and started more than two years ago. The development team is from the Institute of Information and Communication Technologies at Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. Some of the team members are the same people who created the synthesizer we have used for 17 years now. The Bulgarian language is not easy to learn, and creating good quality synthetic speech is not an easy job. Nuance, Microsoft, and Google offer Bulgarian voices in their portfolios, but the overall quality is unsatisfactory. They are usable only as a backup, just in case. We have no UI support, except for macOS, or voice for Bulgarian on Apple devices until now. Now, all Bulgarian users who want to use iOS should know at least one other supported language. There are not as many multilingual blind people here. I would like to express my concerns, ask some questions and make suggestions, but I believe such a conversation could be fruitful only with the people from a higher level in the company. Even though I had reasonable experience with Apple's accessibility support, it is a public secret that contacting the official accessibility at apple.com address doesn't help solve many serious problems, at least not so fast. I am sure, Jonathan, you still remember your serious adventures in the last years. My goal is to prevent a very serious problem before it strikes us in full force. This is what I want, and I don't want it for myself. I still can use the Russian voice to read Bulgarian. I'm doing well without Bulgarian support in Apple devices and am okay if there is no Bulgarian voice. But it's not just me, and I am not okay, especially if the only offered Bulgarian voice is this crappy, unfinished, nuanced junk called Daria. For a top-level company like Apple, who are leaders in mobile accessibility, it would be a shame, a step in the wrong direction, if they break it as badly, especially if we cannot choose the voice, we prefer to read text in our own language. In iOS 15, there are about 9 or 10 US voices, and the total number for all English dialects is about 20. Do you know how many voices there are for Bulgarian? None. 
And if Apple now really offers us such crap without any other alternative, what can I say? We expect much more from such an expensive product. An older iPhone model costs much more than a minimal monthly salary through a mobile operator. If you want to save money to buy one, it may take a year or two. And when you think you are ready to buy, the new price has increased and is beyond your savings. Not to mention current inflation levels. The other option is a second-hand device, and it's not the best choice. People are suggesting that I organize a campaign. I will try, but unfortunately, it isn't so easy to organize as many people as I wish for a massive campaign because we are a small market, and of all blind people here, many don't know English. We have a phone support for Bulgaria, but again, guess what language it is in? You guessed it, English, of course. I don't believe that using the usual contact with the accessibility team will escalate the problem to a higher level. This is a policy problem, not a usual support question. Many people do want to try iOS, but the language barrier is a big obstacle. Even if they buy an iOS device, would a crappy voice present a good user experience? No way. So this is not a complaint. This is a valid concern. I'm not more special than any other customer, but I hope I can be a voice that brings the necessary change. It is not about me. It is for blind Bulgarians who want a good quality product. And now we can offer two great voices, but Apple doesn't open iOS for external speech synthesizers. Last year, there were rumors, and we expected the current version to contain such an API. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. The new synthesizer is almost ready for distribution. The copyright holder is the Bulgarian Union of the Blind, and the organization is the official distributor. The software is ready for Windows and Android, but the developers promised it could easily be ported to other operating systems, such as iOS and Linux. As a member of the Technological Council at the Bulgarian Union of the Blind, I can make the necessary connection with all responsible people here. Therefore, I'm asking for some help to connect the higher level of Apple accessibility management since you already know the way. I know Apple is a closed type of company, but I would like to try. Well, thank you for writing in, Negoslav. The first thing I would suggest is just hanging on another couple of weeks because very shortly iOS 16 developer beta 1 is going to drop. I would expect that to happen this coming Monday. And we can see what there is. I think you're right. I think it is most likely that it is nuance that they are using, but we don't know that for certain yet. And it may be also that this is the year that we get an API for external text-to-speech engines and that it might be possible to compile any voice for iOS and have it in the App Store in some way and that it will be available universally. Because you're right, this is something that's been talked about for quite some time. It's something the blind community really wants and actually other impairment types really want it as well. So there is quite a high demand out there for this to be done. And maybe this is the year that Apple creates the API for it to happen. So if that's in fact what happens, then the problem resolves itself because you've got something in iOS 16 that you can work with. If none of that happens, then I think you really have got a big issue to deal with because it would mean that Apple has some sort of exclusive agreement with Nuance and they want to stick with Nuance when it comes to iOS voices other than Apple's own that they've had for years. 
It may be a very long time, if ever, before they extend those relationships to other providers of text-to-speech. I mean, we don't even have eloquence on iOS. I would love to have eloquence on iOS. And it's owned by Nuance, but Apple doesn't put that in there either. So I think it would be a very difficult thing. And I wish I could just point you to someone to have this sorted out. But this is one of the challenges that we've been talking about in various forms on this podcast for some time. There are many of us, and I have seen your name around the place over the years, who make a difference, who get in there and provide constructive feedback, who want to be a part of the solution. And the way that mainstream technology companies are choosing not to engage with that active community, who has made such a difference in many other respects, is very disappointing. It's a fundamental culture clash, and it's not doing the blind community any good at all. Now, that said, there are people at Apple who do listen to this podcast or read the transcript. Sometimes they grumble a lot, but they do take notice, and it may be that somebody will reach out to you about this Bulgarian voice. I really hope so, because what you're highlighting there is something that many of us should just keep in mind. For many people, getting an iPhone is a huge sacrifice financially. It's a big outlay. And they do it because, in their opinion, it is a superior solution, but it is a considerable financial sacrifice. So let's kick the tires on the iOS 16 beta and see what's there. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Marissa is back in touch with a question about learning remotely. And she says, do you feel there are situations where learning remotely, certainly right now with COVID, certain blindness skills and life skills, is warranted. In normal circumstances, are there other times where you don't feel this is the proper way to learn things? How can concepts such as O&M, Braille, technology, daily living, and money management be adequately taught and explained learning remotely? With respect to assistive technology training, the key is, of course, to find someone who understands the terminology. They have to further be able to explain it in simple terms that the students can understand. The student then has to practice and demonstrate that they can do what they want to accomplish with their technology independently. The independence comes with the student's understanding of how the technology should work. How can they make it work for them? So by the time they finish the instruction, they will feel confident in their ability. After all, I can show you how to use a CCTV, voiceover, JAWS, or Zoom text. However, remember at the end of the day, I may not always be here to help. I was an assistive technology instructor for a few years. I use a variety of technology on a daily basis. I'm not an expert, nor do I claim to be. I just want to help people in similar situations. However, back to the question of learning remotely or not. What are your thoughts? I personally prefer one-on-one personalized instruction. I have retinopathy of prematurity, which thus far has been stable. However, I have other disabilities, including a cognitive impairment. This is why I say what works for me is in-person, hand-over-hand, one-on-one instruction. Everyone's circumstances are different. What may work for one person may not with another. Well, thank you for writing in again, Marissa. You've got quite an extensive list there. For example, assistive technology is quite different, I think, from O&M and cooking skills. 
Assistive technology, I think, is really easily taught remotely when you've got the technology right. Now, of course, that's a big caveat. Somebody has to be tech savvy enough to be able to jump on a Zoom call. So it may be that initial instruction has to take place one-on-one. If somebody's never used a computer before or they've never used it in a blindness context, probably nothing's going to substitute for that initial one-on-one contact. But I think the objective could be to get someone to the point where they feel able to participate in remote sessions as soon as possible. Now, some people will get to the point where they can benefit from group training sessions, and there are a lot of really good ones out there. But the next step, in my view, would be graduating from the need to meet someone face-to-face for those initial instructions to feeling the confidence to jump on a Zoom call and do one-on-one training. That can benefit people who may have O&M challenges, getting somewhere unfamiliar, or for whom it's just stressful doing that. In my own situation, for example, as a hearing impaired person, if I'm going to somewhere that's not that familiar, I can be pretty exhausted and not in a learning frame of mind if I have to do those things, whereas I'm going to be much more focused when I'm learning remotely from the comfort of my home. So there's a factor to consider as well. But you also mentioned in your list things like O&M skills, orientation and mobility, and also potentially household skills like cooking and other household management tasks. I personally can't really imagine how, at least initially, you could do those things remotely. Whether you're doing route training and going from one specific destination to another, or you're doing what they call the discovery method and getting a bunch of techniques that will stand you in good stead, you've got to be out and about, right? And I suppose you could be out and about with an iPhone and somebody watching you, but I don't know. I think that for those sorts of things, it's hard for me to believe that remote learning would work in that sort of context. But if anyone has any thoughts on what they prefer to do, the kinds of tasks that they prefer to learn remotely and that they prefer to learn one-on-one, by all means, be in touch. You may think that these two questions are not related to each other, and they may not be, except to say that one is about Sonos and the other is about meditation, and you can do meditation apps, certain types of meditation apps on Sonos. So here we go with this email from Mara Kelland, who says, Hey, Jonathan, hope you are doing okay down there in Wellington. I am, thank you, Mara. Hope you're doing okay up there in Auckland. I was wondering about two things, she says. One, I am attempting to get my parents into using Sonos to play their music. But when I try to explain the app to my dad, it falls flat. It looks different. The tab bar is not at the bottom, for example. So how do I explain the Sonos app to a sighted person? You've got me curious now, Myra. I wonder whether it does look and feel differently when voiceover is running. I don't have any sighted person to hand at the moment to check this with, because there was a period when the Sonos app did not have the tab bar at the bottom of the app. It was in a different place. But assuming that you've made sure your dad is running the latest version of the app, probably the best thing I would suggest is that Sonos support does have a lot of good information and they have YouTube clips, that kind of thing. So I look at the Sonos YouTube channel and see if that can provide the info that you need. The other thing, too, is that if you've got newer Sonos devices, you may not need to do too much with the Sonos app, depending on the use case. You can, for example, use Google Home or the Amazon device, or for that matter, Siri, if you've got an AirPlay-capable Sonos, and all of the new ones are, to send things to Sonos that way. 
Even in New Zealand, they do have a toll-free number that you can call for support, so that might be another option as well. Two, says Myra, meditation. I have attempted very badly to do this for many years. How do you do it as a blind person? Keep the mind free of distracting thoughts and empty it out in theory. Well, I have two Mosin at Large episodes you might want to check out, Myra. One is episode 28, when I spoke with Liam McClintock of an app called FitMind. It is a highly accessible app, and it's just one of many now accessible meditation apps. The other one is episode 113, where I talked about my own meditation journey, how I developed a practice of meditating, and also a gratitude journal, and it really has changed my life significantly for the better. So that's all in episode 113, and there are resources that I mentioned that you can obtain, and that's all referenced in that episode. But to answer your question specifically, There is a myth out there that to meditate, it involves emptying your mind of everything and that it's a really bad thing if you can't and you're some sort of failure at it. People are very hard on themselves. The mind will wander. That's what the mind does. And some days it'll wander more than others, depending on what's going on in your life and what's on your mind. And the trick to it is just noting when that happens. Don't castigate yourself. If you suddenly notice that you're not focusing anymore on a mantra you're saying or your breath, if you choose to focus on your breath, note that and come back to it. It's all okay. It's all normal. You're not expected to sit there with an empty mind for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes or however long you choose to meditate. So I hope those episodes will help. And there are many good meditation apps out there. Probably some of the most popular ones are the FitMind one that I mentioned. The Calm app is great, and a lot of people use Headspace as well. There is another one called 10% Happier, and that comes with a podcast called the 10% Happier Podcast. It's great that we live in this area where we have so many accessible meditation resources. Hey, Jonathan, this is Maria Christich in Albany, New York, and now with my double chocolate pack, my prior guide dog, Lacey, she decided she was ready to live the retired life. She had turned 12 in December, and with slowing down and becoming a bit more distracted of things and anxious a bit on the bus, so forth. She was letting me know she was ready to hang up her harness, and uh, but I was able to keep her. And she has a dog walker who comes in the afternoon to take her out for a bit while I'm at work. So she's loving the retired life. And I say double chocolate pack because she is a chocolate lab. And I had said to lead her dog where both of my pups are from when I went to get a new pup in February, um, I had said I wanted a, a lab and a smaller dog, and that's all I said. And so it's unbelievable <laughs> that I got another chocolate lab. Her name's Osaka, and she is uh, just about the same weight as Lacey. Um, they're uh, within like a pound of each other, but thankfully I can tactilely tell them apart because Osaka's thinner and longer and has a thinner coat relative to Lacey's. So speaking of dogs, I wanted to mention on that topic of dogs learning to talk, there is a book uh, out. I haven't read it yet. It seems a pretty short uh, read, but it is on my list. And it 
is called How Stella Learned to Talk, and it's by Christina Hunger. She's a speech-language pathologist, and she was inspired by some of the ways that her students communicated to teach her dog to be able to press these pads that had different words associated with them. And so I guess this book is about her journey of teaching her dog, Stella, to talk. And uh, it's available in audio formats and electronic formats, and it's um, uh, kind of available everywhere. On the topic of the uh, ACB and NFB, uh, and I'll say this prefacing that I'm an ACB member, so I'm more familiar with um, them on a more day-to-day basis. As far as I know, and, uh, you know, from, I know there's not officially any kind of statement about it. And, um, you know, I, I haven't heard anything to this effect, but, um, if, you know, someone is a member of both, um, I wouldn't say that's like officially <laughs> frowned upon, um, from, from ACB circles, but I don't see them ever, you know, kind of coming together and reuniting as a single organization because in addition to, yes, there are some of these like philosophical differences such as, you know, the degree to which the built environment should accommodate those of us who are, you know, blind or or visually impaired, but just from an organizational structure perspective, you know, they have evolved in different ways, you know, things like the degrees of affiliate autonomy and whether the approach is a more top-down versus grassroots, things like that. Uh, So I, I, you know, don't see them coming as a single organization. But that being said, first, I have been happy to see the, you know, recent efforts to work together where there is some, you know, common ground on uh, initiatives. Like I know from a legislative standpoint, uh, for example, both are supporting this act whose name I am kind of blanking on, but the the uh, the gist is the accessibility of fitness and exercise equipment. And just dialoguing and such. Um, I think, you know, recently, uh, Dan Spoon, the president of ACB, had put together these fireside chats, as he called them for the last couple of years, during the DC leadership meetings of ACB. And these were just not ACB and NFB only, but various organizations in the blindness space dialoguing. And so I think, you know, efforts like that are wonderful and certainly to be applauded. And, you know, I'm all for the the organizations working together where possible. I think, you know, having the two organizations, I actually don't view that as being you know, a bad thing. Um, in terms of choice, like, you know, we as a blindness community are not like a monolith in terms of, you know, our, our views and, and approaches and things. Um, and so I think having choice is a good thing in terms of the scope of issues. I mean, I can think of even like, you know, c- certain religious based groups that I would say the scope is narrower in terms of the areas to be addressed. And there are multiple organizations with different approaches and that they take on or emphasize different issues. So I actually think with something like blindness that is touching so many areas of our lives, it's good to have multiple groups that are perhaps emphasizing or taking up different issues of the cause. Um, so I don't I don't necessarily see that as a, a bad thing. And finally, 
I wanted to share that I have recently purchased and been、uh, quite impressed with a device called. The Lyric L Y R I Q, as it's spelled here, a text to speech reader, or I've heard it called the Lyric Assistive Reader as well. And the credit goes to Mystic Access, the company, for their presentation on this and their demonstrations and such.、Um, but it is—I never thought I would be interested.、Um, it's kind of think、uh, it's a self-contained base with a camera arm that comes up and. Uh, so it is a self-contained, you know, scanning, reading, OCR type、um, device, and it's quite portable. It's like three pounds or so, and it's、um, I think it's like twelve by twelve by. Two or three, and、um, I never thought I'd be interested. But what really convinced me is that it is so fast and it's accurate. And when you take the document away, it stops reading it. You can. Manually resume it, but between those functions of the speed and the just like the hands-free, it will automatically read and it will stop when you take the document away. I mean, I've just found that it's like saved me so much of time. <laughs> With um, you know, going through mail or like identifying packages in my fridge or my freezer, like boxes of things, or um, even I've scanned like some business cards and IDs and such with it. Um, and it's worked well. Yes, sometimes like say if some instructions are there on the side, like one of the small narrower sides of a package, it could be a little you know trickier because of the height of the camera, the size of you know the reading surface. You kind of have to like place it in the you know correct place, and that might be a little tricky. Here. But、um, yeah, it's been—I mean, just the like hands-free aspect and not having to worry about camera position and things. I mean, it's just—it's a time thing, <laughs> and、um, so I've just been quite impressed with that lately. I've had it for a few days and have、uh, enjoyed making some use of that. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt into the Mosin Media List and receive a brief email on what's coming, so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Kelby Carlson is in touch and says, "Hi, Jonathan. After a long stint with a guide dog, I have moved back to using a cane for navigation. Unfortunately, the quality of canes from Ambutech, which I have used for some time, seem to have degraded noticeably. In the past six months, I've had three different canes become unusable from the elastic on the inside fraying and eventually tearing." I can't reasonably expect to replace and pay for dysfunctional canes, and I'm curious if you or any of the listeners have seen this issue recently, or have suggestions for other cane manufacturers that would be worth looking at. Thanks, Kelby. That must be frustrating. I haven't purchased a cane in some time, so I'm not qualified to comment on whether there may have been a change in the manufacturing process. But there are other manufacturers out there. Revolution canes, I think they were called. They were pretty popular. I'm not sure if they still exist. But if anyone has any comments on white canes, what brand you like and why, where you get your canes from, do be in touch. Eight six four six zero Mosin is my number. That is in the United States. You can record an audio clip or write down an email and send it into Jonathan at MushroomFM dot com. Hello to all listeners of Mosin's Lunch. 
This is Christopher from Melbourne, Australia. And uh, reason for the post today is asking about screen readers and Zendesk. Specifically, how is Zendesk with a screen reader? I am possibly going to be changing jobs and uh, the new role uses Zendesk as the uh, CRM. And I've had a look on the Zendesk website. It appears to conform to a lot of accessibility conventions, but I'm interested in actual uh, real-world information as um, how do others find using Zendesk with uh, JAWS or any other uh, screen reader. When replying, it would help if you actually mentioned what screen reader you are actually using. Hey, Jonathan. My name is Nancy. I'm from the U.S. Uh, apologies, I have allergies here in South Carolina. Ironically, I think it's funny that the zip code, or not the zip code, the area code that you use for your line here in the U.S. is the same area code that I happen to be in. So I thought that was pretty cool. You were talking about the iPod Touch, and I got my very first iPod Touch while I was in college. I think it was in between my junior and senior year. I went to the Apple store in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was really excited because I had heard about voiceover, I think, on one of the ACD radio podcasts. I'm not sure which one. Maybe it was main menu. I don't really remember. But anyway, so I go to the Apple store and I knew nothing about voiceover. I just knew that the iPod was supposed to talk. And that was all I knew. And I lucked out. There happened to be an employee in the Apple store who knew that voiceover was a thing. And I think the only gestures I learned were I, I know the drag your finger around and then double tap. And then maybe there was a flick, but I don't really recall. This was really early days. This was the original iPod touch, similar to the 3GS iPhone, basically. But I got all the way home, unfortunately, to discover that I bought an 8 gig iPod Touch, and at the time, the 8-gig iPod Touch did not talk, but the 16-gigabyte iPod Touch did. Well, the problem for me was, as a broke college student, that was $100 more that I didn't have in my pocket. So my parents were awesome, and they found out what happened, because they originally took me the first time to the Apple Store. And when they happened to be in town, for a visit, we went up to the Apple store. And so they took me, and unfortunately, that one I bought didn't work, was vo- didn't have voiceover as an option. And so I got my roommate to take me back maybe a week later or the next day or something, and I was kind of like, hey, you know, I was told this was going to work, but it didn't work. And so you know, that employee that I referenced before, he was like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. You know, yeah, you needed to. 16 gig iPod, someone should have told you that, that kind of thing. And so he was the one that not only turned voiceover on for me because I didn't know how to do that, but he also taught me some gestures in the Apple store so that when I went home, I got my roommate to help me load music on there from (laughs) the huge CD book that I had. And we were able to listen to music and, uh, That is pretty much history. One thing I will say that I will never forget about the iPod is um, I went to show it off to some other blind friends and everybody's reaction was, 
oh, no, I'll never have one of those. I like to have buttons. And then <laughs> here we are, um, you know, 2022, and every single one of them has an iPhone. So go figure. But I'm low vision, and I definitely in some ways miss the older layout. This next contribution comes from Carolyn. I had to make that clear because her name is cut off at the beginning. Listen to this. In here. Just responding, re the iPod and the iPod Touch. I've never had an iPod Touch. The reason being I couldn't afford to have one as well as have a phone, etc. But I wouldn't have actually minded having an iPod Touch. I thoroughly enjoyed having the little iPod, forget what you call it, the one without the screen. And it was only a one or two gig device, the little wee square one. That was quite fun because I would have one, maybe two books on there or some music. And I could just sneakily listen to it if I was in a boring meeting or whatever. <laughs> so I quite enjoyed those. And I actually quite enjoyed the feel of it. And I quite enjoyed shuffling the music and bits and pieces. If I was sitting on a bus going somewhere, I'd play it. I like to have some music and some books and stuff on my phone. But I also like to have some stuff kept separate on a separate device. I don't have a Victor stream either, unfortunately. It's something I might have to rectify at some point, but the iPod Touch would have been great for doing that. But anyway, needless to say, it's going, and I can understand why, but I do think it's sad because it still is one of the most accessible music book reader players that you can actually buy off the shelf. I mean, yes, you can get accessible devices from elsewhere, but I'm just talking about being able to walk into a shop like Harvey Norman's or No Lemmings or JB Hi-Fi, any of those places, and just buy it off the shelf, take it out of the box, and it works. And I think that was also one of the joys to do with the iPod range, right from the, the little wee mini one and right up to the iPod Touch. Thanks for that, Carolyn. And the wee device that you were thinking of is the iPod Shuffle. That was the one without the screen and with a little bit of storage on it. Here's David from Auckland in New Zealand, and he says, A few days ago, I got an email from Spark. Spark is one of our telco providers here and the dominant cellular carrier in New Zealand, informing me the Ultimate Sports Pack will be withdrawn on the 19th of June. And as a sports fan, especially cricket, I am not happy with this. I've sent off a message to see if they can put me in touch with someone from the retention team, as mentioned a few months ago, giving you a plan not available to the public. I remember if the plan you are on is to be withdrawn, you were allowed to remain on that plan. I would like to be able to keep my Spark slash Sky Sport now in exchange for Netflix, since I don't watch it much. Well, good luck with that, David. I wonder how you got on. I suspect that they will come back and say it's not possible. And the reason for that is that I suspect the partnerships are changing. So if you're a long-time customer and you're on an on-account plan, 
the retention teams of the telcos can be quite accommodating. If your plan is changing in terms of the amount of minutes offered or the amount of data offered, and the reason for that is that that's completely within their control. So they do have a bit of flexibility in that regard. In your case, you're talking about the withdrawal of a plan that involves a third party, a partner of the telco. And I suspect that that's going to be the problem, that in this case, there's been a change in the contractual arrangement between Spark and Sky, and they simply can't do what you want. But if you don't ask, you'll never know. So good luck. Christopher Wright says, maybe you or one of your listeners may know how to do this. I'm trying to figure out how to get the direct URL for an internet radio station so I can do things like playing it in VLC. Places like TuneIn only provide a page that plays the station directly without exposing the URL. I've tried looking at the page source but can't find the link. Is there an easier way to do this? Thanks very much, Christopher. I used to be really into this years ago when I listened to internet radio on my PC. Now I just simply don't. I never listen to internet radio on my PC, or that is done either on my smartphone or on Sonos, so I'm a bit rusty. I used to use a tool in Replay AV, which is a tool I talked about in another context not so long ago. And I don't know whether that product still exists, but certainly the company, Applian Technologies, still exists. And with Replay AV, you used to be able to press a button and it would look on the stream and get the URL for you and copy it to the clipboard and then you could do what you wanted with it. I don't know whether they still have such a tool and you may not want to pay for Replay AV to get a tool like that. I would have suggested what it appears you've already tried and to see if you can inspect the page source to find the URL from there. There used to be quite a few directories of radio stations maintained by individuals. There was a site called Mike's Radio World, and that one was excellent. And when I Google Mike's Radio World, I see a number of matches, but I don't think it is the original Mike's Radio World. That one may well have disappeared. However, there is an up-and-coming radio directory that has, I believe, been set up in response to the increasing commercial nature of sites like TuneIn where TuneIn is inserting ads into streams and doing all sorts of mean and nasty things, and it's actually caused them to be significantly curtailed in the United Kingdom. And there's a website called radiobrowser.info, and that is radio-browser.info. It is an open-source directory of a lot of radio stations. I found out about it, actually, because of a new app that was produced for the Apple Watch, which allows you to listen to internet radio streams even over the Apple Watch's speaker, which is pretty cool. That was the first time that I had heard of radiobrowser.info. And before I heard about it, Mushroom FM and Mushroom Escape weren't listed on there. They are now. I did that as soon as I heard about the Apple Watch app. Now, when you go and you search for a radio station on radio-browser.info, you get the URLs to the streams in a bunch of formats. For example, you can download a PLS file for the stream and do exactly what you want to do, work with it in VLC or whatever you want to do. So there's no guarantee, of course, that every radio station you want is going to be there, but they do seem to be gaining traction and there is an increasing number of stations on there. So that is one solution. Check out radio-browser.info. If anybody is aware of some sort of cool little open source tool that you can use to scrape the stream URL reliably, then by all means, share that and any other tips that you might have. Jonathan Mosen, 
Here's someone living on the edge. It's L'Oreal. And she says, dear Jonathan and Mosin at Large listeners, I've been listening to the podcast for some time now. And prior to that was a constant listener to the Freedom Scientific podcast when Jonathan was the host. We are probably going back to the year 2007 for sure, if not 2006 even. Well, L'Oreal, the first episode went out in December of 2006. So you've got a good memory. And I feel like I should thank you for putting up with me for so long. Loria continues, the reason I am emailing so early this morning here from the United States is, I want to give a brief update to a previous question posed by a listener some episodes back. This question is referring to the use of coupons on sites with the browser Microsoft Edge. It was asked how one who was blind and using assistive technology could access such coupons as they appear when available on a site to the right of the address bar. I have found out how to access them. Of note, this does require much tabbing or shift plus tabbing at the writing of this email. So if you are looking for a quick shortcut or shortcut keystroke, sadly, I have not found one at this point. I have, however, used coupons on apple.com Audible.com, Amazon.com successfully in this past week alone. I hope this bit of information does help, even though I have not given a full step-by-step accounting of how precisely to access these coupons. Thanks, Loria. Well, good to know that they are there and that people can tab to them. Maybe I should see if I have them where I am as well. But sure, if you want to give us a step-by-step, by all means, feel free to do that. And thank you for writing in. Aloha, Jonathan Mosin and all. My name is Lance Kamaka. I am from Oahu. That's the island of Oahu in the state of Hawaii. My question to you and for those who use Mattis Q40, I really love this note taker. It's one of my favorites, the best. And uh, I had it for several months. And um, although iOS has been a pain, using it, um, which is how I use it. I I just have my phone and my device, uh, Mantis Q40. Anyway, one of the members on the Mantis list emailed and asked about selecting groups of text, words, line, etc. And you, Jonathan, replied to that message by listing the steps in achieving this, which I already knew I I do. I've been doing it for a while. um, That is until I downloaded the latest version of iOS. Then things started changing. I could switch the rotor to whatever I want, but then after executing it, it won't work. It will just go out of focus. Now, according to what I was doing, the quick nav was on. When I called Apple Accessibility, they gave me something different. They told me to keep the quick nav off on my Mantis and to use another list of keystrokes to do the same thing. And I'm just wondering if those of you who upgraded to 15.5 have this problem i would appreciate your help thank you and i really love this 
uh, Mosin and Lark podcast. I love reading the transcripts. I love anything that has to do with technology. It's great. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Lance. The keys you use to select text in iOS from a Bluetooth keyboard, like the Mantis Q40, or for that matter, the Apple Wireless keyboard or any external keyboard, is going to vary depending on where you are doing the selection. If you are composing an email or you're writing a document anywhere that there is a text edit field, then you will want to have QuickNav off and then you can use standard text selection methods that really do apply across operating systems. You can hold down the shift key and down arrow, for example, and select a line at a time. Shift with right arrow will select a character at a time. You will find a little bit of difference between how things are done in Windows and how things are done on Apple operating systems when you start selecting words at a time, because in Windows you would use the control right arrow key with shift, and in Mac OS and iOS and iPad OS, you would use the command key instead of the control key with the shift key. Where there is no cursor presence, though, and that could be in a situation where you've got something on the screen that you want to select, like, say, a web page, and you want to select text from a web page, or you're in an app and there is text that you want to copy then those methods aren't going to work. And it is at that point that you would turn QuickNav on and you would use the text selection methods that are built into the rotor for voiceover. So the methods that I was talking about when you have an edit field on the screen, they are standard keyboard commands. They don't have anything to do with voiceover, but voiceover does verbalize them fine. When we get into the rotor, and selecting text on the screen, they are voiceover functions. They are voiceover specific. So you've got to know the tool to use depending on the context. Hope that helps. Christian Bertling is writing in. He says, hey, Jonathan, I just recently purchased Microsoft 365. Do you know if there is a resource similar to personal power for iOS for Microsoft 365 with JAWS? I know that Office 365 together with JAWS is very powerful, but I have no idea where to go to get started. There are plenty of resources relating to using JAWS with Office 365, Christian. The first place I would start is Freedom Scientific's own training, much of which is free. You can go to freedomscientific.com slash training. There's also quite a bit of it available in the help menu of JAWS itself. And you'll find various tutorials about the different Office applications because, of course, Office 365 comprises quite a wide range of applications, most commonly Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Microsoft Teams is increasingly becoming relevant. So check out the training page. Also check out Freedom Scientific's training podcast, which has a lot of material of very good quality. In episode 169 of this podcast, we talked to David Kingsbury, and he's written a book called The Windows Screen Reader Primer. If you do a search for that, it should come right up. It is also free, and there's plenty of information in there about many of the Microsoft 365 applications. It's a very well-written book. Microsoft's own website has a lot of great videos and knowledge base articles that teach you how to do certain things with 
the various Microsoft Office applications, so it's worth checking them out as well. So far, we have talked about all free resources, but there are some very good paid ones. Hartgen Consultancy does one on Word, another on Outlook, and another on PowerPoint, and of course, they are excellent, as all those tutorials are. Another place to try would be Access Technology Institute, who have textbooks and online training available for purchase in Microsoft Office applications. So that'll certainly keep you going for a while. And if anybody else has other recommendations for Microsoft Office 365 learning resources, then feel free to share them. I'm sure you'll enjoy it when you get up to speed, Christian. Microsoft Office 365 and JAWS is a pretty stellar combination. Hey, Jonathan and listeners, this is Scott Davert checking in, as I do from time to time. And of course, as I do from time to time, when I make these recordings, I have several topics to cover. So let's get right into it. First of all, Jonathan, I really appreciate you making the transcripts available for multiple reasons. First, of course, is that I don't have to depend on my hearing to listen to or follow the podcast. I can pull up a transcript and follow it that way. But the other reason is that, and I'll just give an example of it, during the CES interview that you did, I don't remember what number it was on, but there were a few things that I wasn't quite sure on the spelling of that were discussed during that topic. So I simply went back to the transcript and they were spelled correctly and I could look up more information on them. So there's another example of how providing the transcript really benefits people in multiple ways, which isn't really surprising. Uh, It's just like all these other things that were done to accommodate a specific disability. They oftentimes have further reaching benefits that people don't usually understand until a while after the technology is implemented. So thank you very much for continuing to do that. Next topic, iOS 16. I remember from iOS 14 and iOS 15, I don't believe it went back any further than that, but this is our third year with Apple making a GAAD announcement about what will be coming in the next iOS release. And you're right, Jonathan, it's a really neat thing for them to do. And I kind of start to look forward to the Global Accessibility Awareness Day because of those announcements. So I was happy to see they continued to follow that new trend, and I hope they will absolutely continue doing so. Uh, As for the features announced, I think the biggest one for me, of course, is the live captioning function. And I do think that Apple will make that accessible to Braille users. And the reason I say that is because on the Apple TV, or even on your iPhone, you can use captioning with a Braille display. In fact, I've used it during some of their WWDC events. So I think it will be accessible, and I think it's going to be great. Is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. There is no artificial intelligence that can replace human transcription. Jonathan, you found that out when you were trying to just look for a technology that could do the transcripts for this show and found out that there was no such thing at this point. So is it going to be perfect? No, I don't expect it to be perfect. Will it give you the gist of what is going on? I think in a quiet environment, if you have a regional accent set appropriately and all that, yes, I think it will be a great thing that they add. And I'm looking forward to making FaceTime calls using this feature in iOS 16. To be honest with you, 
It's getting more and more difficult for me to understand the audio on even FaceTime calls, which is significantly clearer than what you get on the phone. So if they can give me automated captioning, even though everything won't be 100% correct, I will generally be able to get the gist of what somebody is saying. And that's the most important thing. Are you getting the message? And I know that the closed captioning isn't going to give me like the emotion behind the voice, but I have enough hearing left so that at least I'm able to hear the voice. I may not be able to understand each and every word, but I can tell the tone in which somebody is speaking. So I'm really looking forward to that. Door detection, meh. I just, it, it just doesn't seem practical to me. And maybe it's because of the way I use my iPhone, but I keep my phone in my pocket and I use my braille display. Part of that is just because there's no point in me taking my phone out of my pocket. Part of that is also, I don't really feel like having it stolen or someone trying to take it away from me. And if it's in my pocket, well, there's really not, it's it's not an easy target. Let's put it that way. And there are a lot of other concerns I have about pulling my phone out and basically trying to scan for open doors or closed doors or whatever. However, I am interested in it when it does come to whatever Apple glasses they end up coming out with. Hopefully they will. And at that point, I'll be much more interested in it. You know, it's, it's like taking pictures or any other type of detection that is done within the environment. As a mostly only Braille user, it's very difficult to hold the phone in a very specific way so that it can capture whatever images it can, and then to look down at my Braille display to, to see what it's come up with. And it may not come up with anything great. It's really, um, at this point, more of a challenge for me than it's worth, really. That said, when the head-worn device comes out, I guess I could even maybe use it on a watch, but I, th I think a head-worn device is going to be the most effective way to do this. Uh, then I will be very interested. In the meantime, I purchased the iPhone SE 3, and I'm saving my money for those glasses, which undoubtedly will cost a significant amount of money, but I'm really looking forward to that. Third topic, Android. Obviously, the Braille announcement coming in Android 13 is a big deal, but is it a big deal? I would say that, yes, it's still a big deal, even without the HID support. But it's bad news for the AT companies, and the reason is that many consumers don't care how they get their support or who has to make the changes. They just want it made. And in this case, it really is looking like companies like Humanware, Orbit Research has already done this, and Others who have adopted the HID standard may unfortunately have to go backward with it and do some sort of emulation like Orbit Research has done with the Orbit Reader 40 and the Vario Ultra. Unfortunately, unlike the Orbit 40 and other devices that can emulate, this emulation will probably need to be in place forever. It's not what the ideal solution would be. I fully understand that. But I think at the end of the day, manufacturers of Braille displays may have to make it so that their devices can emulate an older display that meets the standard Google is following. I uh, Again, I don't like that idea at all. I, I think it's not fair. It's a bunch of uh, bad soup, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. It's a bunch of bull soup. Uh, that uh, this is the way it goes, but that's unfortunately where we're at. I I really would be happy to be part of an advocacy effort to make this not be the case. But I think a lot of it is going to have to come from the manufacturers themselves. Thank you, Scott. Good to hear from you. I fear that you could be right. We could be stuck in a game of high-tech chicken here. You can understand why human wear and similar brow display manufacturers are frustrated that they have gone with head in good faith. And there appears to be some issues with its implementation at Google But meantime, blind people are stuck in the middle, aren't they? And so if the software can be updated to emulate some sort of older Braille display whose Bluetooth support is included in the operating system, then I suppose that could be a workaround for now. Perhaps HumanWare considers that there are some downsides in doing this, but it certainly is worth considering, I think, at this point. Hi, Jonathan. This is Alco Canfield again. I have not resolved my problem. When I put a password in with my iPhone, laboriously doing one letter at a time, I see bullets on my Braille display. However, if I write the password on my Braille display, it does not register on my iPhone. Bullets or nothing, neither one. So the keyboard is visible, and I guess it's just one of those things I'll have to put up with. Perhaps in the new software update 16, there may be a change. I talked to HumanWare. They blame Apple. I talked to Apple. They blame HumanWare. So that's kind of where we are. Thank you so much. If you have any ideas, I'm always open to learning new things. Well, as we've heard on the podcast recently, Alco, it looks like you're not alone. There are others experiencing this. So I think the only reason why I am not is that I've got a Mantis and that has a QWERTY keyboard. So when I type in my password, since I'm not inputting it in Braille, with an uppercase B, of course, I am missing out on the privilege of experiencing this bug. Does changing to uncontracted Braille help when you are in the password field? That's the only thing I can think of. But it is disappointing that we're this far into the iOS 15 cycle and Braille bugs of that magnitude persist. Here's an email that says, Hi, Jonathan and Bonnie. My name is John McDowell, and I live in Surrey, British Columbia, Canada. Regarding Bonnie's frustrations with Comcast, I empathize with her, because Shaw Cable uses the same hardware as Comcast, and their technical support representatives also lack the ability to remotely troubleshoot technical problems to customers with disabilities. In light of this, I've suggested to them that troubleshooting via a video conferencing platform that allows customers to share the camera and screen of a mobile device may help improve the troubleshooting process because the representative will be able to diagnose the problem visually without having to translate visual descriptions and instructions. It would also be helpful if there were a way to grant service providers permission to have remote access to customers' hardware, so representatives may be able to identify technical problems and remotely fix them for customers who prefer not having to fix them for themselves. If it's possible to grant someone remote desktop access to help computer users with their technical problems, surely it's possible to do this with cable and internet hardware. In any case, thanks for the great podcast and keep up the good work. Great to hear from you, John. I suppose the downside of all this is that if your cable provider also provides you with the internet, 
and your internet goes down, then you might not be able to take advantage of any of these remote troubleshooting internet-based methods because you've got no internet, and that's what you need the tech support for. The one way around this, of course, would be if you can use your cell phone as a hotspot and connect that way. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Those of you who've been following my work for a while will know that I am a big Sonos fan. I think we now have 16 Sonos devices at Mosen Towers. We have gone all in. And I think that's a testimony, really, to the way that this community that we've built over the years on various shows works. Because I was first introduced to Sonos on the Mosin Explosion, and I would have listeners who would email in or tweet in and say, I'm listening to the Mosin Explosion on my Sonos thing, and it's wonderful, and you should look at this. And my first thought was, why? I've got a good home theater system. We've got great audio around the place. Why would I want to invest in this thing? Bonnie was the same way. In fact, my children will tell you about this famous conference at a Turkish cafe that we had, where I was intrigued enough to think, should we buy a Sonos Play One, which was just a wee way to get into the ecosystem in those days? And we sat there in this Turkish cafe, and Bonnie was saying, do we really need this thing? We've got all these other things. And I bought one because I'm a curious soul, and I really saw the value of the Sonos ecosystem, to the extent that pretty quickly afterwards, we bought the play bar, and we bought the surrounds, and the sub, and we really went all in with Sonos. And I wrote a book about Sonos, no longer available because the ecosystem has moved on significantly since I wrote that book called Sonosthesia, which introduced quite a lot of blind people to the Sonos ecosystem who weren't already in it. And I used to get these emails from people who say, in fact, sometimes I still get emails from people who say, thanks to you, I've spent all this money. If you know of Sonos, but you don't really know what the hype is about, let me briefly say that Sonos is a multi-room ecosystem first and foremost. They have branched out a little bit more in recent years with some portable Bluetooth devices. But the big draw card of Sonos is the multi-room audio that's in perfect sync. They do take care with the quality of their audio. Now, you will get some people who say there are better quality sounding wireless solutions out there. I think we've had Gordon Luke on the podcast talking about the Lin system that he has and how much he likes that. And there are others as well. Sonos is a recognized name. They continue to innovate and they have really good arrangements with many streaming music services. And what that means is that in the one app, you have access to many music services and streaming radio services in a consistent, accessible environment. It's a great experience on iOS. Brian Hartgen has done some free JAWS scripts for the Sonos Windows app, which I must say I don't use very often. I tend to just grab my phone or talk to Sonos, and I'm pretty sure the Android experience is quite good as well. There are devices on the market available now which include microphones, and they allow you to talk to Amazon's assistant, which we lovingly call the soup drinker on this podcast so we don't trigger assistance from all around the world when we say its name. It also has Google Assistant support, and now Sonos has its own voice control, which you can run concurrently with your more popular commercial voice assistant of choice. 
My understanding is that when Sonos started going down the voice route, their hope was that you would be able to leave the Google Assistant and the Soup Drinker on at the same time. So with this one device, you'd be able to talk to either Assistant just by using its appropriate code word. That would be indeed very consistent with the way that Sonos likes to work. They try to be platform agnostic and let you decide which service is best for you in any given situation. So, for example, if you subscribe to Apple Music and Spotify and Amazon Music Unlimited, Deezer, Cobuzz, Tidal, YouTube Music, if you're on all of them, man, you must be pretty out of pocket if you are, but you can be and just use the service that's appropriate in any one time. If you search for a song, for example, you will be able to search across all those music services and find the track that you want. I have found, for example, that with some of the more obscure services, like Deezer, for example, you do get mixes and live recordings and things that are not available on some other services. So it is quite a cool thing to be able to have. So Sonos tries to get out of the way and let you interact with multiple services in the one app. That's what they wanted to do with voice commands, but there was resistance from the providers of those voice commands. Sonos has now come up with their own voice control solution. And so they have control here. and They don't mind if you want to use their solution in conjunction with one of the others. So you can have Sonos voice control and the soup drinker or Sonos voice control and Google Assistant set up at any one time. Not all Sonos products have a microphone, and there are some people who do not want devices that could be potentially listening to them in their home. So if you're going to use this feature, you need to make sure that you are buying one of the Sonos products that does offer voice control. All of them do offer a mute capability, so you can mute it when you don't want it to be listening. We have several products in Mosin Towers that support this voice control feature, including our Sonos Arc. We also have some Sonos Ones that do, and we have a Sonos Roam, and I've got the Sonos Roam in the studio. Also in the studio here, we have a full Sonos setup. We've got two Play 5s and a sub, but they are older devices and they don't support the voice control. For those who do have concerns about devices that are listening and what happens to that audio that they are listening for, Sonos has taken a different approach and all of the processing of your voice commands stay on the device. Nothing is sent to the internet, nothing goes to the cloud. I think that poses some potential challenges because it means that the system can't learn about various variations of styles of request or dialect as quickly as some of the cloud-based services would. But Sonos say they are going to get around that because some beta testers have knowingly opted in to allow Sonos to listen to their specific voice commands. Sonos Voice Control is not attempting to replace your soup drinker or Google Assistant. It is attempting to give you access to the music functions of Sonos. So you can do some pretty cool things, including sending by voice, say something that's playing in your living room, to the master bedroom if you have Sonos all over the house. So this is great if you're very steeped in the Sonos ecosystem like we are. You can group speakers together with voice commands. And what's quite intriguing about this voice command solution is that you can group some commands together. I'll give you a demo in a moment, but when we get to that demo, if the voice is familiar to you, it's because it is the voice of Giancarlo Esposito, 
He's starred in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and The Mandalorian, so if it's a familiar voice, that's why. When I heard that Sonos Voice Control was available, I thought I'll go to the Sonos app and find where to set it up in settings. But when I opened the Sonos app, it told me that Voice Control was available. It was obviously very excited about this fact and took me through the process of setting it up on the devices that I have switched on all the time. So for us, that included the Sonos Arc system in our living room and a few other devices. I have not set it up on my portable Sonos Roam speaker yet, and I deliberately haven't done that so we can see if we can show you the process of doing that. Setup was very straightforward, but it may take a wee while if you have a few Sonos devices that are compatible with Sonos voice control because it did have to install firmware updates on every device on which I wanted to use voice control. You may have a smoother experience with Sonos voice control if you set a default music service. So let's first of all go into the Sonos app and set that up. Open Sonos. Sonos. Alarms. One active. Button. I'm now in the Sonos app and I'm going to go to the bottom of the screen by performing a four-finger single tap. Play. Dimmed. Button. I'll flick left. Playing no music selected. Bathroom. Button. Tab bar. Settings. Tab. Five of five. The settings tab is where I want to be, so I'll double tap. Selected. Settings. Tab. Five of five. Sonos is pushing the voice control thing quite hard, because if I go to the top of the screen, I'll find something special. Settings. Heading. I'll flick right. Set up. Heading. Get to know Sonos voice control. Estimated time five minutes. Button. I'll double tap. New card, Sonos Voice Control. Incredible sound. At your request. Start tour button. That is the start tour button, and I'll double tap it. New card, unheard of privacy. At this point, I'm going to perform a continuous read. Unheard of privacy. Voice requests are processed on your product and never recorded, saved, or sent to the cloud. About voice privacy button. Item 1 of 16. Adjustable. Close button. I am going to close this because there are 16 items here, many of which will discuss what I want to demonstrate. So you can take this tour. You can also go to the Sonos website and read the support articles about things you can say and the limitations of the voice control service at the moment. For example, the services that voice control supports right now are Sonos Radio, Apple Music, Amazon Music, Deezer, and Pandora. And of course, Pandora is not available everywhere. It's a US-specific service these days. The big one that's missing? No Spotify. The next big one that's missing? No YouTube Music. But Spotify is a big one to be missing from a service like this. So I've closed this, and you can have a play with it if you want. But I'm going to go to the top of the screen. Settings. Heading. And flick right. Account. System. Button. Services and voice. Music. Podcasts. Voice assistance. Button. That's what I want to do. I'll double tap this. Voice. Heading. And flick right. Amazon. Button. Sonos voice control. Button. I want to configure this, so I'll double tap Sonos voice control. Sonos products. Sonos voice control is enabled. Heading. Bathroom. Button. Dining room. Button. Lounge. Plus sub plus LS plus RS. Button. Sonos voice control settings. Heading. Default service. Set a default service for SVC button. I want to add my Sonos Roam in a moment and we'll get to that. But first of all, I do want to set this default music service. It just makes the queries simpler. I'll double tap. 
Select a default music service to use with Sonos voice control. And I'll flick right. Apple Music. Bonnie. Button. Apple Music. Jonathan. Button. Sonos Radio. Button. AccuRadio. Not compatible. Jonathan. Dimmed. Button. And then we have a bunch of other services that are not compatible yet, so I'll flick left. Sonos Radio. Button. Apple Music. Jonathan. Button. And double tap. Selected. Apple Music. Jonathan. I'll go to the top of the screen. Sonos Voice Control. Back button. And double tap that. Sonos. So now I navigate to the heading. Sonos Voice Control. Heading. Sonos Voice Control Settings. Default Service. Apple Music. Jonathan. Button. Excellent. That's all set up now. I'm now going to go to the app switcher to close the Sonos app. App switcher. So close Sonos. Closing Sonos. App switcher. Very good. I'll go home again. And now I'm going to switch on my Sonos Roam, which has not received any kind of update pertaining to Sonos voice control at the moment. So I'm just giving that some time to switch on, power up, and be detected by the Sonos app, and then we will rerun the Sonos app. I think enough time has elapsed, so we'll open Sonos again. Open Sonos. Connected to Sonos. I'll flick right. Set up. Heading. Get to know Sonos voice control. Estimated time 8 minutes. And we're back to that message that's popped up again. Close. Button. I'll close it. Close. System. Button. Services and voice. Music. Podcasts. Voice assistance. Button. I haven't been prompted to update my Roam at this point, so I'll go in here and add Sonos voice control to the Roam. Voice, heading, Amazon Alta, Sonos voice control, button, Sonos products, bathroom, button, dining room, lounge, add to another product, button. That's what I want to do, so I'll double tap. New card, getting Sonos, Sonos voice control lets you easily control your system with simple voice requests. Control music hands-free. Move music between rooms. Enjoy total privacy. Get started, button. I was flicking through that. I'll get started. New card. Terms of use. I'd like to tell you I've been a good boy and I've read the terms of use. You can choose to believe that or not. I'll go to the bottom of the screen. Close, button. And flick left. Not now, button. Accept and continue, button. I'll double tap. Accept and con- New card. Select a room to add Sonos voice control. And I'll flick right. Shadow Sonos Realm. There we go. Portamosin. Portamosin. That's the name of my Rome. Select button. And I'll double tap to select it. Select. New card. Sonos voice control will work along with Amazon Alert, which is already on your Sonos Realm. That's a nice touch. It's just giving me assurance that I don't have to choose between Sonos voice control and the soup drinker. Add Sonos voice control button. I'll double tap. Add Sonos. New card. Your Sonos Realm. Portamosin needs an update to use Sonos voice control. This may take a few minutes. Update button. I'll double tap. Update. New card. Unheard of privacy. Voice requests are processed on your product and never recorded, saved, or sent to the cloud. Update tip one of three. Adjustable. Updating your Sonos Realm. This should take several minutes. Please wait.
And I don't have a percentage indicator there, but it is updating. So I will pause the recording while it updates the firmware of my Sonos Roam and we'll come back and detail what happens. Oh, new card. The need to pause the recording has been added to because I waffled on so long. Ordemosin. Let's get started with a quick tour. Continue button. Skip button. I'm going to skip the tour right now. Skip. New card. Sonos voice control is ready to use in Portamosin. Just say hey Sonos. Play music to get it started. Done button. And I'll double tap the done button. Done. Services and voice. Just a warning, we're going to go into a demonstration, a brief one, of the voice control feature. And I am going to use the wake word for the assistant quite a bit. As you heard, it is H-E-Y and then Sonos. I'm going to try and edit it to the extent that it doesn't trigger it. It's hard for me to know how much I have to do because this is so new. So if I do trigger your Sonos device, please accept my apologies. I'll do my best not to. Hey, sis, what's the time? It is 7.23 a.m. Hey, sis, what can I say? Sonos Voice Control lets you make music requests, adjust volume, skip songs, group and ungroup products, and more. Voice requests are not stored, so what you say at home stays at home. You will notice that it is really responsive, and that's because everything is happening on the device, as it just said. Hey, play Don't Shut Me Down by ABBA. Sorry, I don't understand. Please use the Sonos app. Hey, play Don't Shut Me Down by ABBA. Sorry, I don't understand. Please use the Sonos app. Hey, play the album ABBA Voyage. Hey, stop. Hey, turn it down. By the way, you don't need to repeat the wake word when making consecutive requests. Hey, turn it down. Turn it up. Turn it up. Hey, turn it up. Hey, play Get Back by the Beatles. Oh, it's playing that version. Okay. Hey, transfer this to the studio. It didn't do that. Hey, play in the studio. I can't locate that. Please check your product names in the Sonos app. Okay. Hey, play in the studio. I can't locate that. Please check your product names in the Sonos app. Hey, play in studio. I can't locate that. Please check your product names in the Sonos app. It's definitely called studio. Stop. 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 That really is quite loud, actually. I'm not sure why it's so loud. Hey, volume three. Hey, set volume to 40%. Hey, what's my battery level? The battery is fully charged. Okay, so it's quieter now. Hey, play my variety playlist. I can't find that content. Should I play the song called Riot instead? No. 
Hey, play my workout playlist. I can't find that content. Should I play the song called Workout instead? No. Hey, play the playlist variety from Apple Music. No? Okay, don't then. Hey, play my workout playlist from Apple Music. Now, Sonos does say that some services don't support playlists, and it may be that they don't have playlist support enabled for Apple Music. Hey, play I Still Have Faith in You by ABBA. Sorry, I don't understand. Please use the Sonos app. Well, that's really quiet. Hey, set volume to 50%. Okay, why is it playing that? Hey, play I Still Have Faith in You by ABBA. Sorry, I don't understand. Please use the Sonos app. That's interesting. Hey, stop. Hey, play Mushroom FM. I can tell you now that is not Mushroom FM. Hey, stop. I've got a hotkey that tells me what Mushroom FM is playing at any given time, and it's not playing that. It's actually playing Ronnie Millsap, and that doesn't sound anything like Ronnie. Hey, play Mushroom FM on Sonos Radio. Great. We don't want to hurry you, but um, no, doesn't seem to want to do that either. Hey, play Mushroom FM on Sonos Radio. Okay. Yes, well. Or maybe it was listening to me. So it's not. (laughs) Oh. Okay, now it is actually playing it. It is playing it from Sonos Radio if we specify that. Hey, stop. I have just taken a look, actually, while I've been having a play with this, at the Sonos app. And to be fair to Sonos, the name of the device precisely in the app is called Studio Sonos. The reason for that is that in the studio we have all sorts of devices. We've got lights, we've got things that... Uh, controlled by home automation. And so I change the names to Sonos to make it explicit when I'm talking about devices. That said, if I use a Siri command or a soup drinker command, I can just say in the studio and it gets it. Perhaps the Sonos device is a little bit more fiddly at the moment. So let me try. Hey, play the name of the game by ABBA. Sorry, I don't understand. Please use the Sonos app. Is it something to do with the name ABBA that it doesn't understand? That is quite strange. Let me try. Hey, play Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Okay, now let's try. Hey, play this in the studio, Sonos. 
Grouping Studio Sonos with Portamosin. All right, now we have really good sound because it's coming not only over the Rome, but also in the studio where the sub is, and we've got two stereo play fives. Hey, stop. So you do have to be really precise about the names of your devices. So in the app, this is called Studio Sonos. You have to say Studio Sonos if you want to group it. But the ability to group devices by voice is super handy. You can also use the Sonos app to configure different groups. And that may be a more quick and reliable way. For example, we have a scenario in the morning where we want our morning news as we get ready for work to be played in the dining room, the master bedroom and the living room as we move around. I also have it connected to my hearing aids through the Sonos, what do they call the new one? Sonos port, I think. So having a group is very useful because then you can just use Sonos voice to say, play this to this entire group and it will do it. Let's try something else. Hey, resume. It picked up where it left off. And now we can say, hey, I like this. Okay, I'll play more songs like this one on Apple Music. Hey, so play A Night at the Opera by Queen. Sorry, I don't understand. Please use the Sonos app. Hey, Sonos, play the album A Night at the Opera by Queen. I think it's going to do it. So you really have to be quite prescriptive right now, and I think this is one of the downsides of the on-device model. So now we should be able to say, haste skip. Haste like this song and skip. Well, maybe it did because we've skipped. Haste add this album to my library. We don't get any confirmation about whether it did or not. Haste stop. And of course, we still have access to the other service that we might have set up. If I say, for example, haste, what's the weather today? Haste, what's the weather forecast? Sorry, I don't understand. It's currently cloudy and 11 degrees. Now that's Expect interesting. partly cloudy skies starting tonight. <laughs> Temperatures will be fairly consistent, averaging about 9 degrees. <laughs> They're all talking to me. But of course, we still do have the other one. So we can say, soup drinker, what's the forecast today? The current weather is 13 degrees Celsius with intermittent clouds. Today's forecast has showers with a high of 13 degrees and a low of 5 degrees. Okay, so we still have both voice assistants. Soup drinker, play Don't Shut Me Down by ABBA. Don't Shut Me Down by ABBA from Jonathan's Apple Music. See, just like that. Yep. A while 
there we go. I better stop it now. What I conclude about this is that it's pretty rough and ready right now. Who knows if it will get better? Clearly, the on-device feature is a point of difference, and they're trying to be sensitive to people's privacy concerns. Whether that will inhibit the development of this voice control remains to be seen. But the grouping stuff is really good. When you get used to the fact that you do have to give very precise names for the devices, the ability to group by voice is useful and practically beneficial. I see myself, for the most part, though, using my soup drinker. One thing I haven't demonstrated because I have the roam here in the studio and I'm not going to go up to the living room for this demonstration is the way that you have some control over your home theater system. And again, this is quite practical, although I can do some, not all, but some of these things with the soup drinker. I've got the Samsung TV that I've demonstrated on the podcast before, for example, so I can use it to do quite a lot of things relating to the TV. But you can, if you've got a soundbar that is connected to your TV via HDMI SEC, say to your voice control on Sonos to turn on the TV, and of course you can do that from anywhere that you have a Sonos assistant, you can also toggle night sound or speech enhancement on and off. That is actually a really practical thing to be able to do at times. You can toggle between the Sonos being a Sonos and playing from the Sonos ecosystem and playing from the HDMI with a voice command. Sonos will try and toggle automatically, depending on what's going on, but to be able to do that by voice may just speed things up and make things less ambiguous. So that's a quick look at the first iteration to go public anyway of Sonos voice control. It doesn't hit it out of the park for me. It isn't a feature that I would say sells Sonos, that you would buy Sonos specifically because of it, but it has some practical benefit and we'll watch where it goes. If you've been playing with Sonos voice control and you have some thoughts to share, do be in touch. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is my email address. You can attach an audio clip to that email or just write something down. My number at which you can leave a voicemail is 864-60-MOSIN in the United States, 864-606-6736. We like to listen to the bananas. Daylight come and we want more. They're more entertaining than their old manners. Daylight come and we want more. Come, Mr. Mosin, man, bring on the banana. Daylight come and we want more. Come, Mr. Mosin, man, bring on the bananas. Daylight come and we want more. For many years when the kids were younger, and cuter. We used to have this feature called the Banana Report on the Mosin Explosion, and the kids grew up on the radio. And the reason why we called it the Banana Report was that there were four of them, and I considered that's a bunch of them, you know, one banana, two banana, three banana, four. And we don't have banana reports very often, but when we do, they tend to be momentous these days. And so joining us from sunny Invercargill is David Mosin and Joanna Mosin. Welcome to you both. How's it going? What an introduction. This is the first time you've been (laughs) Joanna Mosin on here, Joanna. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. You rocking that name? No no regrets or anything like that? No, no regrets yet, at least. All right, well, you've got time. (laughs) 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 So you guys got married in January of this year, and it was a great wedding, but wow, wasn't it hot? Oh, it was a scorcher. (laughs) Yeah. Mate. Yeah. In oh, retrospect, yeah. would you have had an indoor wedding? 
No, I don't think so. I just wish we had it on a day that was maybe five degrees less. At least. At least. Yep. Oh, well, <laughs> all those photos, too. All those photos. Oh, okay. That was a killer. Oh, yeah. But you haven't messed around. Well, you have messed around, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I told you you'd go blind. Yeah. But we got the most amazing call a few Saturdays ago, so uh, why don't we just let you both pick up the story? Well, so basically we're uh, we're going out to a party with friends and um, Joanna thought it'd be a safe idea to check to see if uh, that's the appropriate thing to do, to go out, and um, I'm there minding my own business, and then out of nowhere, Joanna comes around the corner with a pregnancy test with a clear positive reading on it, and oh my god, this is, my soul left my body, it was crazy. So you had a hunch, yeah. Joanna, did you? You had a hunch that you might be pregnant? Yeah, I just had this feeling. Well, we were we were trying for a baby, but to no avail. And so that to uh, no yeah. avail. You've only been married like three or four months or whatever it is. Yeah, but oh. we 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 had our goals set out in front of us. We <laughs> we know what we want, you know. <laughs> well, at least the trying's not exactly unpleasant, you know. I mean, well, I mean, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. So so then I got the call. Yeah. So I um. I had to do the do the calling and we called Joanna's parents and we called you and everyone seemed very happy. Oh, I was just absolutely over the moon. I mean oh, I, can't, I was okay. I, I was, was stoked just, with how happy you were. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I tears <laughs> streaming down my face. I was so excited and happy. I am so looking forward to being a granddad and being able to spoil the kid rotten and then give it back to you and all those good things. I've been down yeah. here in my studio recording little stories with sound effects and all sorts of funny voices and things like that. So the baby's going to have quite a collection of stories by the time it arrives, which is when? When's the due date? The due date, well, originally we thought, because of this little app, we um thought the due date was going to be the 10th of January, but um, we recently had a scan to see how everything was going, the uh, the eight-week scan, and she can she went and told us that actually the due date's the 5th of January. Yeah, just after New Year's. So five days into 2023 is when the baby is due. And it's a bit of an approximation anyway, and often first yeah. babies tend to be late and all kinds of things like that, so you never know, you might get a New Year's Day baby. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah. How's pregnancy for you, Joanna? It's been a bit bit yucky at times? Yeah, it's been interesting. Some <laughs> days have definitely some days have definitely been better than others, but no, it hasn't been it's been kind of strange, like a strange feeling almost, but it's good. And when you see that scan and it makes it just so real that there's this wonderful living thing there, that is just so special, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Especially seeing the heartbeat, the little flicker. It's quite cool. Yeah, just a little little flicker on the screen and you can see the, the baby's heart going. And, man, those baby's hearts are going fast. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so as of the scan, it was – um. It was 21 millimetres long, which is tiny, about the size of a date. So, yeah, yeah it's it's very small. It's a miracle, isn't it? It's such a miracle. It's, it's, they, oh, it's crazy how big they get in the space of nine months, from literally nothing to 
like a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. And so you've started thinking about names and all those practical things? Yeah, we've been going through that. And, um, yeah, it really depends of the gender of the baby and stuff, which we will find out at 27. At 20 weeks. Tw- at 20 weeks. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have we have a few names in mind. Oh, so you've not definitely decided on Harley for a boy? No. Because no, I, well, I couldn't tell if you were, like, ribbing me about that or not. What do you mean? No, I really like that name. Because when I said to you why you want to call it Harley, you said because it's Harley David's son, and I thought you've got to be pulling my leg about that then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, we do, we do actually very, really like that name. Okay. Then. And um, for a girl, when, it, uh, when I – Sorry, backtracking here. When I when I proposed to Joanna, I proposed to her with a ring that's been in the family for a while. And the original owner of that ring, her name was Florence. And we both really liked that name. It's a bit old-fashioned, but it's kind of sat well with both of us. So we're thinking of Florence for a girl, or Flo for short, or Flossie. So. That's pretty. We'll give her a baby monitor. It'll be Florence in the machine. <laughs> exactly. You know, those dog days are over. Yeah. Tremendous. And big changes coming for you both because you've decided to come up to be a bit closer to family. And obviously family are very excited about this because you have a big line of people lined up to do the babysitting and stuff, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, that's the idea. Because, (laughs) um, yeah, a few years back, Joanna and I both moved to the deep south, which is quite far away from home. So we um, have decided that probably the best thing is to move back north where all the family are at and there will be, you know, around people that can give us support and it's a bit warmer and a bit more familiar. So, What you find with a lot of young parents is it's just really overwhelming. It's a huge thing. But, Joanna, you've had a lot of experience with kids in your family, right? Yes, I definitely have. How many nieces and nephews and siblings? And I mean, you've, you've, you've got a lot of experience to fall back on. Yeah, well, I have three young, like, younger siblings, but the younger two I remember helping out with mum. But other than that, I have 14 nieces and nephews in total, so <laughs> a lot of practice already. Yeah, so mm. what was it like when grandchild number 15 was announced for your parents? Are they like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> are they still excited about another grandchild? Yeah, well, that's what I was expecting them to do. But Mum ended up in tears, and Dad was really excited. So, still good reactions the fifteenth oh, yes. time round. It's such wonderful news, and of course, then the most common question that I've been asked, you know, is very much a an excited bystander who who's involved to some little degree is what will I be called? And it's interesting how many people want to know this and how many names there are for grandparents. There are a few, some I haven't even heard of, but uh, Bonnie was suggesting names like, um, what was it? Babushka. Yeah. She's been radical. Gigi. 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 It wouldn't surprise me if she just got called Bonnie, to be honest. I think she'd be mm. quite happy to be called Bonnie. But um, Paul McCartney wrote a book. He's written two now, actually, for children about this character called Grand Dude. And when Heidi saw that book, she said, when the grandchildren come along, you should be called Grand Dude. And it's kind of cool. I like that idea. You want to be called Grand Dude? I don't know. I don't know if I could go through with it. I'm not yeah. sure if I can. <laughs> well, so, I mean, it's, it's a good idea. It's a nice thought. 
Yeah, but Heidi thinks yeah. it suits me, so, you know, I, uh, I don't know. Grand but uh, I think often kids decide. Kids come up for with names for grandparents and that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, so. often it's just what they can say or what yes. they can, you know, get their mouth around. So was, yeah. I, I mean, for exa- example, um, sorry, for example, your your father was granddad to everyone else but Papa to us because that's what Heidi could say. So Yep. Yep. Heidi said yeah. the change. She couldn't say granddad, she said Papa, and so it stuck. Yep. Mm. That sort of thing happens. So do you have a hope for either gender? Like would you would you in your heart of hearts prefer a girl or a boy or doesn't it matter? Well personally yeah. I'm uh hoping for a boy. Are you? But yeah, but I you know I wouldn't be disappointed with a girl because what kind of a parent would I be but um <laughs> yeah no I, I I am hoping for a boy personally you think there'll be yeah. a bond there you know like oh, I hope so yeah and Joe no. you've got a preference I'm torn some days I'm like yeah I really want a boy and other days I'm like no a girl will be cool to, you know so I'm unsure on the fence wow the when fence. you hold that yeah. little bundle in your arms You'll just love them to bits no matter what. Uh, it is so exciting. I cannot tell you how hard it was. Right throughout my career, <laughs> my life, I've had to keep all sorts of secrets, certainly professional secrets, about amazing products that I've been working on for a year or two or various really big things like that. But keeping this secret for the short time I've had to keep it has been the hardest thing of my life <laughs> because I wake up in the morning, right, and the first thing I think of when I start to to gain consciousness every morning is, whoa, I'm gonna, whoa, I'm gonna be, <laughs> I cannot be a granddad, and I like bounce out of bed, and so keeping it a secret for all this time has been just the hardest thing. So we're super excited here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, oh, I mean, I mean, even though it was our decision, I also found it a bit of a hard time just not telling everyone I see on the street. Oh, I'm going to be a dad, by the way. So, but we we waited for the for the first scan before we went and announced it to the world. David, people have been listening to all this internet radio malarkey since before yep. you were born, and I actually remember when you were born. I had this massive folder of emails from people who sent in congratulations from all around the world about the fact that you had been born and I came on the radio just after you'd been born and talked about you and all that sort of thing. And now here we are. There are people who've been listening that long to see you actually having children of your own. So that's amazing. That is crazy to think about. Yeah. Wow. You've been doing this for a long time. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so um, I'm sure that there'll be many people who've watched you grow up or heard you grow up on the radio who just couldn't be more thrilled for you. They'll be just absolutely over the moon. So well done to you both. Well, I look, I look forward to the uh, – what are we going to call it? Is it going to be called a banana report when I bring my own child on or is it going to be called something else? BTNG, Bananas the Next Generation. Ah, well, I look forward to the first BTNG report. Yes. All right. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. And, hey, and, no, thank you for having us. Good luck, Joe. It's going to be, it's going to be epic. It is. It's going to be good. <laughs>
I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it? 